This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, we feature a special interview with Father Thomas Keating. Father Thomas Keating was a Trappist monk for over 60 years and was known as one of the principal developers of Centering Prayer, a contemporary method of contemplative prayer that emerged from St. Joseph's Abbey in Spencer, Massachusetts. Father Thomas Keating co-founded the Snowmass Interreligious Conference and also Contemplative Outreach. And he's the author of many books, including Open Mind, Open Heart. Father Thomas Keating had a rare intelligence, brightness, and warmth about him. A true pioneer of both centering prayer and interfaith dialogue He was beloved by many, including me, and passed away on October 25th, 2018, at the age of 95. The following interview I had with Father Thomas Keating took place 10 years ago. It happened in person while Sounds True was recording an online course on Centering Prayer. In celebration of the life of Father Thomas Keating, I hope you enjoy this special broadcast of Insights at the Edge. Thank you, Father Thomas, for being willing to have this conversation with me. Thank you. Welcome. What I really want to know about is more about your life story. And part of it is what, what I've found is that in the actual life story of someone who has given themselves so completely to God, there are all kinds of interesting twists and turns that are incredibly illuminating to, to look at them and to understand them. And so I'm really curious, even if we go back, why you became a monk and, of all things, a Trappist monk. What was happening for you in your early life that that motivation emerged? Well, let's uh, try to make some observations. You're, you're dealing with an old gentleman I realize of that. 85 yeah. and a half who, whose memory is not too good and who also was making a special effort to forget himself anyway. <laughs> so... So an exercise of trying to remember the is is not immediately uh, attractive. So it takes a little effort to get back into those attitudes that that uh, by which God seems to have led me or put up with me, depending on how you look at it. So um, I would I was brought up in a family that was. Uh, fairly well off and who had an outstanding uh, 
father who was, uh, he was a graduate of Harvard Law School and very intelligent person. And his, his roommate, I believe, at Harvard Law School was uh, Joseph P. Kennedy, if you ever heard of him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so he, his father had started a company called the Yale Lock and Safe Company. Hmm. He might have been a very wealthy man, except that he got into uh, some financial troubles or someone went off with the funds, some tragedy that he wasn't responsible for. So my father's ideal was somewhat similar to that of many uh, Irish folks who were coming into their own in those years from the two world wars and who were climbing the social ladder and becoming significant people or professional people, whether doctors or politicians in some cases, but who were uh, climbing the social ladder, let us say, and whose, whose great perspective, you know, was to make a contribution to one's generation mm-hmm. and, uh, and to give the best education possible to the children. And in other words, they were outstanding human values or the social values that many immigrants imbibed in, in that period of American history. So I came into the world and was named after my grandfather, who was the head of this maritime legal firm in New York. And so I was more or less expected from the word go to be the successor of my father. My father, incidentally, had after he got out of Harvard Law School, had gone to uh, try to find a job in New York. And he came to this firm. I don't know why he chose the maritime Hmm. law, but he presented his credentials to my grandpa. And grandpa said, well, you know, we don't take Roman Catholics into this firm. Dad, who wasn't that devout a Roman Catholic at that time, uh, said, well, don't you have any clients who are Catholics? And Grandpa said, well, and now that I think of it, we, we have the United States Lines, Grace Company, and people like Grace Company is, uh, Peter Grace was a uh, Catholic and so on. So he finally got the job. And then he was such a good lawyer that my grandpa started talking him up when he came home at dinner. (laughs) And my mother said, well, don't you bring this young man down that we can see him. And uh, so he came down and apparently made quite an impression on on this daughter of my grandpa Mm -hmm. who decided to marry him. Now, he had already... a son whose mother had died in the flu epidemic of 1918. So he was a great friend of mine, even though he was seven years older than I as I got older. And he was very devout, but in the way that uh, Catholics, some Catholics, were devout in those days, which was to make good use of the sacrament of confession. 
<laughs> and, and to hope that that would take care of other details in their life. A wonderful person in the, in the life of any party he attended. And uh, so he, he was not, he was all social and outgoing. He was not a candidate to be head of this legal firm. So I was blissfully unaware of these expectations because I wasn't told about them. But as I got interested in, especially when I went to Yale, I got interested in, in, in the uh, contemporary philosophers and these challenged my faith and I decided I had to take time to resolve these doubts as to whether I should continue as a uh -huh. Catholic and with the uh, practices of, of that, uh, that religion. So it was in reading uh, Tolstoy that I, and his book on the uh, commentary on the Sermon of the Mount, very powerful, convinced me that, that uh, Christianity required a non-possessive attitude and a preference for the poor. So I conceived the idea of leaving home and living in a, a down-at-the-heel apartment in Harlem or someplace like that. Well, this didn't go down too well. <laughs> the folks at home... I couldn't understand what happened to me. I imagine they thought I was losing my mind or something. But with the help of some uh, clerical guidance I, I, and their refusal to give me permission to enter any kind of religious life, I was only 18 at that time. But this gave me time to, to while I was there at that first, and I stayed another year at Yale, to... Uh, make use of the Yale Library, and, and there I discovered the Fathers of the Church, and, and I realized that Christianity was a contemplative religion, and that that's what I began to see as, as, as the uh, goal of my commitment to Christ. And so, so I used to hang out in church a lot to the amazing dismay of some of my friends at Yale. Sometimes went a couple of times a day, and I prayed in private and hung out with the old ladies at the uh, novenas and <laughs> toured the side altars in honor of the various saints. So I was prepared to do just about anything to establish a relationship with, with Jesus as, as I was beginning to understand him through the eyes and hearts of the fathers of the church like Origen and Augustine and Gregory of Nyssa and Basil and Cyril of Alexandria and all the shining luminaries of those early centuries of Christianity. Would you say that it was primarily a longing that you felt or a distaste or were you avoiding something? Were you being called to something? Was it a combination? Well, it, it's as far as I understood it, and yeah. of course we can be deceived in that age and, and with the alternatives. Remember now the war was, uh, was beginning at about that time. And having read Tolstoy, who was a pacifist, I had questions in my mind of whether that war was a just war and whether uh, some of my friends had uh, chosen to go to jail rather than to be drafted. But 
I decided, you know, as the Holocaust was becoming better known, that it was uncertain whether it was a just war or not at the very least. And so I decided that I would just wait to be drafted. And if I was drafted, I would just be killed because I couldn't conceive of shooting anybody. Because your mind might change when you're on a battlefield. But his, his teaching, you know, he was a correspondence with Gandhi, is, is very powerful uh, in regard to violence and, and the meaning of the Sermon on the Mountain. So it deeply, deeply impressed me. So what really happened, I was completely sold out on pursuing the spiritual life. And it was understood in those days, an idea I no longer agree, that if you wanted to be a contemplative, you, you more or less had to go to a cloister or to have the kind of environment that would support it, which is what monastic life is all about anyway. So I, I looked around for the hardest life I could find in order to gain the precious goal that was uh, presented as available only in those circumstances. Now, I no longer think that at all as a result of my experience, both as a monk and in the spiritual life itself. But it's, it's, it's normal for a, uh, an institution to over-institutionalize its charisms. And so it was thought that to be a contemplative, which was very rare, you had to be an environment that was totally in the service of that project, and it was somewhat opposed to an active uh, work in the world of some kind. So, so it meant really, uh, in the very strict sense of the word, separation from the world. So it implied that, that you could do more for the world by leaving it than by entering it and serving it. So those were all ideas that I imbibed. I hadn't much uh, judgment nor any advice available at the time. Now, now, you mentioned that you no longer believe that those hardships, the monastic hardships, are necessary to have this infinitely deep relationship with God. Exactly. So how do you think monastic life might need to be revisioned in light of that discovery for future generations? Well, I think it's in the process of considering those opportunities. The the life that I entered was extremely strict. We got up at 2 a.m. and we had nine different offices in the choir every day and we sang the office on feast days. Silence was strict. You could only speak to two people, the abbot and the novice master, both of whom could throw you out. So they're not exactly candidates for friendship. <laughs> but they were wonderful people. But the, the experience of silence was very valuable. There's no doubt about that. That to spend five years or six years in silence that profound. Since Vatican II, it's, the silence has been adjusted to times and places. So, and the interaction between monks and, uh, has been uh, softened or humanized, you might say so that the life is, is, is uh, more accessible. Oddly enough, there are less vocations today than when it was almost inaccessible. Mm -hmm. 
there's a tendency of generous people, to, like I, I guess, was at the time, to choose the hardest life you can find as a symbol of your intention and generosity and love. But there's an awful lot of ego in that. And in, unfortunately, in, in all religion, there is, uh, it starts when you're in the egoic level of consciousness. So it's bound to, to be mixed up with the best intentions. And this is part of the, uh, of the experience of monastic life in finding that your best efforts and, and the heroic aspirations, at least in your own mind that you set for yourselves, is not the way that the, that the path unfolds. And, and so you have a lot of uh, bitter disappointments in, in yourself that uh, challenges one to to uh, persevere in a, in a lifestyle in which you are very insignificant and uh, hidden. Mm -hmm. And those are real values, but they're not the same as, uh, as the, what is deeper, it seems to me, in human nature, is this capacity for divine union, which is the capacity for contemplative life, like in the... Christian tradition, contemplation uh, over the years has been looked on as something that is pure gift. Yes, it is a pure gift. But the, the clarification that is not usually added to it is that it's a gift that has already been given. It comes with life. And it's not so much a question of going out looking for it as it is uh, accepting it and awakening to it, which is which is very much the insight I think of, of most of the great spiritual traditions of other of other, including as I mentioned earlier today, the experience of the Buddha. I sympathize with him completely. I went into this monastery hoping to find the circumstances that would lead me as quickly as possible into the heights of contemplation. I now think that I'm a, probably was an expression of my native ambitious character. <laughs> Who knows? But what I do know is that contemplation is, is, is a gift. That, you know, to me, it's an innate gift of which every human being is capable and possible, and which they need in order to fulfill the human destiny of union with God and with each other and all the cosmic oneness that is, is described in all the traditions as the, uh, the gradual unfolding of the interior life. So, so here's my core question about monasticism, which is we're now in a very different time than when you entered the monastery. And a young person who might have a deep, ambitious call to pursue the contemplative life might say, monasticism, that's kind of dead. That's, that's previous centuries' work. Now, to really express that divine union right in the middle of dealing with money and a relationship and children, that's much more challenging and difficult. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose that route. There's no blockage 
to me of how deep yes. I can go in my prayer life. And so I'm curious how, if you were talking to a new generation of people who feel a deep sense of calling, what you might say about the monastic option. Well, I think the essence of monastic life remains. How you express this essence needs to be adjusted to different times and places and cultures. I would say about the young men that you described, I was something of that uh, ilk, you might say. And uh, my experience is that in, you need a certain amount of solitude and silence to be able to balance the intense uh, noise or stress or speed or expectations or the uh, intrusion of the mass media into every aspect of one's life. Because we already have this, this susceptibility or this vulnerability to uh, stimulation to seek security and power control. So there's no greater security than to think one is on the right spiritual path or uh -huh. has the right religion. This is, this is a neurotic way of being religious. Uh -huh. But it's normal for most people to start out that way. You have to start somewhere. The problem is that once you start, unless you have enough discipline to balance off the amount of needless activity or to help discern what is important or less important. This is something that I think that where you need help and that means a community of experience and support and I don't know where you'd find this except in a group of, of committed people. But it's also true that, that young people are not uh, coming to the religious life or monastic life in any significant numbers. And so the communities are in an aging process and many worried about the future of whether their way of life can be sustained. So this is not a judgment on the motive of people, but I'm not sure that the motive is, is as noble as, as you imply, uh -huh. where their reason for not entering the monastery is for a more involved or committed life. I think there are some communities who have done this, like Mother Teresa's order. But many, many other forms of religious life are, are, are not into that level of involvement or com uh, commitment or, or uh, identification with the poor in the sense of living with them, which is the, which is the kind of witness that Jesus seems to recommend. Do you feel any concern that people's interest in monasticism is on, on the wane, that not many young people are feeling drawn to that? Does that concern you, or is that...? No, it doesn't. <laughs> because I think the value of monasticism is, is incredible, and that it's invisible influence. And this is a conviction of all monastic forms and all the other religions, too, that in the lifestyle itself and the total commitment to the absolute or to God that it implies is, is itself one of the greatest ways of serving God. And that the prayer or meditation or the service in, in the whatever limited way is, is, is in honor in a particular community 
is is uh, is affecting the whole of humanity in a way that would not be nearly so effective if they had gone to an active ministry without the interior development that the monastic lifestyle fosters. So really the question is not what lifestyle you enter, but how committed one is to the transformative process, whatever one's style of life is. And uh, lay people, this is what prompted us to want to share the essence of monastic prayer with people outside because we felt that they needed it more than we did, and that it was an essential part of the grace of, of Christian baptism, and that without it, they would not be able to fully live out their particular vocations, whether this be married, family, professional, single, or, uh, or some committed lifestyle. There is a tendency in in the recent generations, to find commitment extremely difficult, especially permanent commitment. It's awesome. I mean, I don't know many of the folks here, I'm sure, have been married, but in the, in the excitement of, of the wedding, and especially in trying to pay for the expenses of it, you might, you might uh, forget what a huge commitment this is to another person if you take the permanent monogamous ideal of marriage to heart. 50% of people in this country do not. Well, I mean, it's interesting using this term permanent commitment. Do you feel that you've made a permanent commitment in your life? And if so, what, what are you... Yes. What, what is that? Well, it, it, the... What is comparable to, I suppose, the marriage contract in, in, uh, in life in the world is in a monastery is solemn profession, which is the commitment to uh, stay uh, in the community of one's profession for life. And so it, it, whatever that community does or wherever it goes, you commit yourself. So you're really taking it for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. So it's like being in 15 or 20 bad marriages at the same time. (laughs) That's meant to be a little sarcastic, actually. The brethren are wonderful, but an intense community life brings out the elements of the false self almost as well as the contemplative divine therapy that I described. Now, you mentioned, though, that if we seek security in our religious identity, that that is a a false kind of security, that that's a false idea. But yet at the same time... It can be. But at the same time, you're making a permanent commitment. So what, what I'm curious about is, have you ever had a point where you really doubted your monastic path? Or this... I mean, you really thought, you know, I don't know. And what did you do with that doubt? Well, I had those doubts when, during the period of formation, when you are supposed to be evaluating whether this is your vocation or not. And it's discerned not only by you, but by the community and the people appointed in the community to try to discern this. Um, what has 
happened to me, which may be not characteristic of all vocations, is that uh, as a result of circumstances and uh, what I consider uh, the the uh, divine way in which God uh, brings one to a, to a certain place or prepares one for a certain kind of ministry. I, I reached a point where I recognized that it doesn't really matter what role you have as long as you're prepared to relinquish it at God's request. So it's a question of being totally committed and totally detached from the commitment at the same time. And that, it seems to me, is, is one of the fruits of, of the prayer and the consequences of relating to God. Everything is, is, is a means and can be changed and gets changed by circumstances, historical or otherwise. So that there's... The genuineness of one's commitment is can be as real as real can be, and yet it can, in the course of circumstances, be changed. For instance, it doesn't mean you necessarily would leave your commitment, but you'd be willing to if God asked you to do so. So, so it's 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 part of the detachment process. It seems to me that goes with contemplation that. However much you love your spouse, you have to accept the fact that they may die or you may die. So you have to give everything back to God that God has given you in some way and uh, we'll be detached from all our roles uh, in the process of dying. And so it must be, since contemplative life is, is a death and resurrection, indeed a dying into uh, by accepting the circumstances of the present moment and, and rising again. So death and resurrection is the warp and woof of the Christian life. So in the monastery, this tends to be emphasized or, or kind of up front. And, uh, and so if one is attached to the monastic observances, then it doesn't mean you should leave but that you'll experience circumstances that will little by little challenge you to let go of certain aspects of it that you had found helpful in the beginning or were overly dependent on. So it's simply the process of letting go of interior freedom that is this, the central point of everybody's commitment so that in Marriage, the children go up, grow up and leave, go someplace else. You have to move sometimes. You get sick or your loved one gets sick. So that doesn't mean it's time to start a new career, but that it is time to accept the circumstances of life as it's unfolding in one's particular vocation and and to adjust to that even though you're giving up something you love in in the scriptures there's a marvelous paradigm of that which is which is the sacrifice of Isaac which in the literal sense is somewhat horrendous but in the spiritual sense of that passage in which god seems to have believed or abraham believed god so much that he thought god would raise his son from the dead i guess but 
what it symbolizes spiritually is an experience that confronts us again and again in the spiritual journey, which is the letting go of what you most love for the love of God. And that, it seems to me, is going to happen in everybody's experience of the spiritual journey, whichever particular form it takes. And it takes, it happens in, in, the, uh, in the family and married life, it happens in the cloister, it will happen, I'm sure, in, in the life of, of single persons. And that's why this, the spiritual life is, is superior to any form of life particular lifestyle. They're all serving this greater purpose. Mm -hmm. And it takes sometimes a long time for us to perceive that. And perhaps it takes longer in lifestyles that are kind of ends in themselves, like a very noble lifestyle, like the religious life or priesthood or something similar. It doesn't occur to you there might be something better that God might call you to. Yeah. Or that he might call you to let go of all expression, like you might might get sick or you might get fired from a diocese or you might be rejected by the people. Anything can happen in the spiritual journey. And it will happen if you need it to help you let go of some exaggerated dependency on anything. Have there been times in your life where God has asked you to make a change or to let go of something or to do something and you just thought, what? Like, what? Yes, Vatican II occurred when I was the abbot of a large monastery with several dependent monasteries in uh, Spencer, Massachusetts. And, and this was a traumatic experience the end of the council for many in the community because reforms or changes were made an object of choice for each monastery that involved greater changes in a few months or years at the most than in 1,500 years of monastic mm -hmm. experience. So it meant that those who had committed themselves to this lifestyle, like perhaps the older monks, felt that their life was, the rug was being pulled out from under it because certain more contemporary uh, changes were suggested, like the, the, uh, after the Vatican, all the orders were, were urged to study the teaching of their founders and the gospel in the light of, of contemporary circumstances and the signs of the times. So in view of the psychological development of human beings from the Middle Ages, it was felt by many leaders in the monastic life, just to limit myself to the group I know best, and, and we felt that certain changes had to be made to make the life accessible to the actual human condition of people today, especially from the aspect of fasting, uh, some degree of privacy, because we led, led an intensely common life, even sleeping in a common dormitory and so on. So there was also a question of education, the question of, of human development, which was a large subject even in society at that time. But it seemed that people 
young people coming in too young would not have the occasions in the monastery to develop their human side and would then later raise questions that would uh, question whether they had made the right decision in staying in the monastery. So there were many poignant situations and you found a certain group of, of young people and also middle-aged folks who were eager and saw the necessity of these changes in order to humanize the life and those who felt that the life was being taken away from them without their having been consulted in a serious way. So the abbot in this situation was in a no-win Mm-hmm. position. Whatever was decided would distress maybe half of the community and profoundly and some as a result left the order and some in a state of fairly serious disappointment or disillusionment or even feeling betrayed. Others stayed on with those feelings and naturally they were not too uh, warm disposed towards the people who brought this about. So it created a great deal of tension in many areas of religious life and monasteries. So living as for 20 years, more or less, in that situation, because Vatican II began just as I was elected abbot of of this uh, traditional monastery. So whatever I did would not succeed. Mm -hmm. So it was like dying every day, you might say. Mm -hmm. And also it was a a question of wondering what to do in the particular situation. Because my training, in which I completely bought as an ardent follower of the rule of St. Benedict, was shredded by some people, even by some of the abbots of it was not the secure situation yeah. or the clear path to transformation that I had envisaged after reading the early monastic fathers and their ideal way of explaining the situation. It was soul-searching. And then uh, add to that a few of the usual troubles of monastic life, like lawsuits. and uh-huh. were, were there any... Uh, either prayers or stories from the lives of saints that became your touchstone through those kinds of challenges? Oh, they were very helpful. I had read them, a lot of them, before I even entered, like yeah. John of the Cross and all primary mystics. But reading something about something is not quite the same as going through it yourself. And so in the in the monastery, you uh, you were, were living these issues that uh, some of the great monastic writers wrote about, and and so you knew what the ideal was, and you also recognized how much you failed. So it was an exercise in the diminutions of self. Uh-huh. Very welcome, very pleasant. I'm sold out on this dying and living again. <laughs> but it didn't come easily, and, uh, and, and you feel wiped out sometimes. Mm-hmm. We had a few other difficulties, like a fire that destroyed the monastery. And I remember 
coming out of this uh, fire trap, which is a dormitory on the top floor of this old building, and and being uh, overcome or starting to be overcome by the smoke of the uh, tar paper between the floors. And I certainly would have died, except that some one of the community off to the side of where the fire was rising, called out to us and said, come this way, because we couldn't see a thing. And when I jumped out of the first floor window after having passed through a wall of flame, lost my hair, by the way, uh, I remember landing in a snowbank and saying to myself, maybe God isn't as interested in this (laughs) lifestyle as I am. <laughs> so if, if you've ever been thrown out of a restaurant or a hotel or a bar or something, believe me, this was a more vigorous evacuation. <laughs> but actually it took me 20 years to understand that insight because I was so wedded to the strict interpretation of the rule that it didn't dawn on me that maybe there should be changes. But then the changes happened anyway. Uh Through Vatican II and circumstances totally out of my control. And so at a certain point after I had been abbot 20 years, it seemed time for me to, to resign. Now after 20 years to be more or less see that it's time to resign is a kind of death too. Yeah. Means that that all you the labors you put into a, a job as as demanding as the abbot of a monastery doesn't mean anything. So it's a a a role changing situation, but then everybody's gonna be asked to let go of their roles at some time. So part of the disidentification activity of the divine therapy is to invite us to let go of whatever role we have. So if you're a mother, you have to let the children grow up. If you're a a teacher, you have to face retirement and the students forget you. Uh, I guess it happens in the military and in all professional lifestyles. It's not the end, but the beginning of a new life free of an unconscious attachment that one might have had. So, so the divine expertise or wisdom or intelligence is relentlessly sifting our, our motivation, which in Christianity, love is everything. And so wherever there is self-love in our service, God eventually brings that to our attention and invites us doesn't force us as far as I can see, but invites us to let go and let God act. So in my experience, the intimacy and skill and uh, consideration and patience and forgiveness and encouragement, consolation, that God offers at every moment and gradually brings one into a situation that that one has a big death, not just a little daily one. This is what leads to, in my view at least, or experience, 
the greatest freedom, peace, contentment, and trust in God, and yet at the same time a sense that one is capable of any evil and therefore cannot judge oneself as better than anyone else, but rather is the recipient of the compassion and mercy of everybody else. So I don't make any demands on anybody anymore. I regard any kind of acceptance as a gift and a, a great kindness. I don't regard this work that we call contemplative outreach as mine. It was trusted to me chiefly because God chooses usually the worst of instruments because he likes to exercise his skill in difficult situations as far as I can see. Uh, this is the one point I might have to disagree with you on. I'm not convinced of this one, but anyway. So I, I'm, I'm, in, I'm greatly enamored of one of Jesus' sayings that it seems to me is very profound. It goes like this. If you want to save your life, that is, if you want to pursue the false self-expectations. You will bring yourself to ruin. But anyone, notice, anyone who brings himself, herself to nothing will find out who they are. So who are you? Or who am I? This is the great question. And it's not our resume, it's not our ego, it's not even the true self, it seems. To be no thing is to have no attachment to anything. But that to have no attachment to anything is to possess everything, because that's the way God functions. To be nothing is to be everything. Without wanting to be, it just happens. Now, now you said these little deaths and then yes. leading to a big death, yes. but we're distinguishing that big death from physical death. You're talking about a, a, a yeah, big death in a your... Bigger, uh, yeah, so what is, uh, I'm curious uh, about uh, that. A real is, sacrifice of Isaac. Yeah. Like when I had to leave the community at Spencer, where I had led most of my life, after 20 years of going through this excruciating ex readjustment of, of monastic values and, and bearing the, the trials and... and problems of others who were going through the same. It felt like rejection. Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, here I was, notice the self-reflective yeah. apparatus going off. No matter how advanced you are, God can put you in a situation that activates any shred of, uh, of self-confidence. Uh, Not in the I shouldn't say perhaps confidence, I don't know the, quite the word, but it is the experience of nothingness. That is just a, a sense of having nothing to stand on, nothing to depend on, even God, while having boundless confidence that this is another side of God, that we need to go through this in order to learn. And so it's the commitment or the love of God that keeps you dying and rising again. And I think you begin to get better at it with time. Although when you're just beginning to think you know how to do it, you get another little uh, invitation to go deeper. 
But that's a strange paradox that I have nothing to stand on, even God. Yes. I have nothing to stand on, yet a boundless confidence in right. this process. It is a paradox because you can't say it in one sentence. You have to say one aspect or another, so it sounds like a paradox. But what it really is it is an insight into the oneness of experience, which is both uh, humbling and exalting at the same time, which is both death and resurrection. So pain is joy and joy is pain. That's a Buddhist saying, by the way. <laughs> so so they, they understand that. I know you know a lot about Eastern spiritual paths. Yes, and you, I try to. And so I'm curious if, do you think there's some parallel to the concept of enlightenment in Eastern traditions? Oh, sure. There's so the different terms what, for what the is same the term, general experience. What would, what would be the term in the spiritual journey as you've outlined it? Transforming union which is the term of the extended death, so to speak, of the dark night of the soul in which one feels abandoned by God, or when he can even feel like one is an atheist, because the dark night of the spirit heals our mistaken ideas of God that we might have brought with us from early childhood or or interpreted the teachings of our particular denomination. So what a, a contribution atheists make, perhaps without intending to do so, is that there is no God, at least the one we thought we knew. Mm-hmm. So in the dark night, people sometimes feel they've lost their faith in God himself because everything has disintegrated that supported them. But in actual fact, the true God has just been born. And the, the God of our childhood, who might have been a monster or some codependent personality, is the only thing that dies, but he never existed anyway. So there's no real loss, except that, that one's attachment to that God has been shredded, and one is left, uh, for the moment at least, in tatters, like death, or worse than death. But it passes, and the acceptance of it is resurrection. And those supernatural gifts begin to manifest in direct proportion to the depth of that death. Dying and rising again. Death is resurrection, perhaps, in the, para, in the paradoxical understanding of, that Jesus presents. Because on the cross, in, the, in, in much of the Gospel of John, he's reigning as if he was the king of the universe, even in the depth of his rejection and degradation and identification with sin. Now, it seems like, from hearing you, Uh, teach on this course on Centering Prayer, you've talked several times about the uh, tremendous, unbelievable power of facing God in its total rawness and immensity. And that at the moment of our death, our physical death, some kind of experience 
may open up for us. At least this is how I've understood you, and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong. Some kind of experience may happen for us at the time of physical death that is not available to us as long as we're incarnated in bodies and and have these forms to work with. Is that correct? Do you think there's something that happens at the time of physical death that we can't experience until we actually physically die? Well, that's my guess. (laughs) (laughs) Because most of our troubles are in the brain. Those are the habits of thinking that are unquestioned or that have been the habits of years. So when the brain dies, all of the background material and context or the unconscious influences of our, even our genetic or ancestral influences or the influence of the collective unconscious, what a, a new field of investigation, everything is gone. And so for the first time in our conscious life, we can make a totally free choice. And if that choice is made in the presence of God, there's only one answer. That one will plunge into that immensity of, of love uh, irresistibly. So what is separating us from God primarily is the thought that we're separated from God. When that dies, there's no more separation, is there? That's at least my reasoning of the uh, process. I haven't been through this, by the way. So <laughs> I haven't even had a near-death experience that lots of people have had. And when a, a great saint dies, a great person dies, and then afterwards future generations have some feeling often that they're accessing the energy and the blessing power of this being. What, what do you think is happening there? Oh, it's an exchange of energy that is not well known to us yet, but there are lots of breakthroughs. There's a doctrine that, in the Catholic communion, at least, which is called the communion of saints, which means that the difference of those who have gone before us and us is, is probably very small, and that there's a constant interaction perhaps going on, more clear in some people. So the fact that one's loved one dies isn't the end at all. It's just a call for a new relationship, somewhat like the death of one of our roles is is an invitation to form a new relationship and a new role that is more mature, you might say. So... What were we talking about? I got... <laughs> we're talking about these uh, great beings oh, who yes. died. Can we access them Well, even them very in some mo- way? modest yeah. beings like myself have had uh, wonderful experiences of folks in the next life without trying. I L- mean, like what? I'd be curious about that. Well, I, I sometimes experience the presence of someone that's gone before. I know all kinds of people who, after the death of a loved one, had some kind of very thoughtful reassurance, like like a son who committed suicide. His mother was devastated, and, and in a little prayer group where they laid hands and prayed, she saw him outside the prayer group. And he said to her, everything's okay. So that's all she really needed to hear. 
So I've, I've heard that over and over again, and, and sometimes in a deathbed, one's beloved ones who've gone before may join one and cheer one along. You mentioned you've had, though, some experiences in your life related to this. I'd be well, curious are you about interested that. in... Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> well, I had a, a, a most uh, moving experience... Uh, in the midst of my uh, exercise of being an abbot and the incredible number of meetings we had in different parts of the world to discuss these changes that I referred to earlier. So we were in Rome at the, uh, at the end of the council and we decided to take an afternoon off, something of a luxury for Trappist abbots. So we went to Anzio Beach. I don't know why we picked that place. And Anzio Beach is where the Italian campaign, most of the young men are buried. So as I walked into that place, so this is uh, difficult for me to explain because I'm always moved by the sweetness of this experience. But as I walked in there, I felt surrounded by friends that I couldn't see, as if they were saying, here's the guy who entered the monastery to pray for us while we were fighting our way up the Po River and being blown to pieces. So I felt this sense of being surrounded by friends and a warmth of affection that is much greater than what you usually get in a party of living adults. So as I walked down the line of, of tombstones, crosses, not tombstones, I guess, and, and some Jewish crosses, I, I realized something I had heard uh, when I was uh, given a, a deferment to enter a seminary and had misgivings about it because I wanted to be a Trappist, not a diocesan priest. And this is a saintly pastor said to me, this war is not meant for you. And that was for me a word of wisdom, which is a kind of reassurance in a word or two that goes to your heart and you know somehow God is speaking to you or reality is revealing something to you. And that you think you understand what it says, but it gave me confidence to proceed on that path that I didn't have before. Well, as I walked through that cemetery, those words came back to me. And I realized that they were saying, that that priest was saying, or God was telling me through that priest, that I wasn't meant for that war, but that I had another one that I was going to have to be through, go through that was much longer and would last the whole of life, perhaps. Mm. And they were saying, this guy has a, word, has a war to go through, and now he needs our help. More, at least that was the thoughts that went through my head. I needed their help more than they needed mine. So this was this tremendous reciprocal action, oneness or unity, in which I knew that these people, whoever they were, loved me and were grateful. But that also 
my need for them was as great as their need for me in their time. And so it was an enlightened moment for me to see that everything that happens is a social event. And there is no private virtues or even private faults or sins that everything we do is affecting everybody else. And when this is is coming out of love or charity, it's extremely powerful. How, I don't know, but it's that kind of love that overcomes all evil and is much more powerful than the accumulation of human ills and brutality and intolerance and indifference that I suppose is sitting in some data bank waiting to be balanced or healed or exterminated by the incredible power of love, especially divine love, which seeks no reward. It's just has to share the goodness that it's received. So it's not something you take credit for, good deeds, as I understand it, but it's something you do as a steward of the mercy of God that you've experienced in your own life. So... It, 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 it makes me feel well overwhelmed by the love of God, which is so human, so tender, so considerate, so wise and so tender. Like, there's 20 years or so a difference between the two events in that incident, and yet it, it took just the right moment a time when I was most wounded, you might say, mm-hmm. to communicate a kind of reassurance that was incomparable. I couldn't have thought up, or nobody else could have thought it up. So I, I cannot not believe in the incredible concern that God has for every human being that is expressed in a second, nanosecond of time, protection. It's not just once in a while. It's every moment this reality is is relating with us like an eternal dance in which he leads us and which we're invited to follow. And obviously we stumble sometimes, but that doesn't interrupt the dance just a part of the learning process. So that's my contribution to your (laughs) request. Well, it's interesting that it it happened during a time of such um, difficulty for you. I mean, interesting that sort of the veils opened during a time of, you know, devastation. But my point is I'm trying to get, and I'm not succeeding, I'm sure, that this kind of experience is normal. It's what happens all the time. We just don't see it. And it's these moments of awareness yeah. that take divide the veils, as you say. But the veils are always separated. We just think they've been divided because we hadn't noticed it before. But now we're beginning to notice that God is accompanying us and wants to be our companion at every step breath, heartbeat, thought, word, and deed. In other words, there is no other. There is just God. 
from the perspective of oneness. And there is us on our way to becoming God too and incorporating this, the dispositions of infinite love in, in our daily lives. And it doesn't matter if you keep failing. It's, that's to be expected. So the bottom line, as far as I can see, is not to be surprised by our faults, disconcerted, but to acknowledge them in all honesty and give them to God as kind of gifts and await the time when he takes them away. To be, as they say in the 12-step program, to be willing that God take away our faults. That's the primary disposition. And then to be content and peaceful in waiting for that to happen. I just have one last question here. Yeah. I could talk to you for a very long time, but I'm going to wrap it up here. Yeah. You know, the diminishment that you're describing of the spiritual path, the diminishment of the glorious, grand self-project, that, that diminishment is not um, uh, popular in the world. You don't, you don't get popularity points necessarily for that kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And, and that can be hard. I mean, to enter a process, I mean, here you are, you're a monastic, you've signed up for it, you know, yes. uh, uh, other people, you know, I, I mean, I want to be a fabulous whatever, in, you know, doing this, but I'm signing up for a diminishment project? Yes. There's a contradiction there that is a hard one to wrestle with. <laughs> well, <laughs> well it, this is God's idea, not mine. <laughs> so, uh, on, so in my view, only he can bring it about. All I can do is say that it exists. So it's between you and God to decide whether it's a possibility more power to you. But the more the people who do this, the more chance there is of transforming society and the terrible horrors of our present world situation. It will not be cured in any other way. In other words, only utmost love can overcome utmost violence. Violence is rooted in our animal nature and until it's integrated into our neocortex and our human brain and the further levels of consciousness that that uh, rational level opens like a gate into a whole new aspects of, of human life. Until that happens, I don't know what's going to happen to society. The last hundred years have been absolutely horrendous in human brutality and violence. And the technology is now far exceeding the moral judgment onto its justification. So as technology develops greater and greater weapons of destruction, we really risk the loss of human civilization as we know it. If someone starts escalating conventional weapons into nuclear or chemical biological weapons. And there are people already present in the world who think this is the way to defend yourself. 
if that was a way of defending oneself in earlier times, it doesn't work anymore. There is no just war because you can't help but kill an enormous number of innocent people. And the statistics are that if, you, if there is a war, the safest thing to do is to join the military because the, most people who are killed now are not soldiers, but civilians. What does that say about justification of war? In any case, it's, these are huge problems that leaders of the world have to face, and I really don't know how we can help them to engage in the kind of dialogue, collaboration, negotiation that is essential for human society to survive in such a situation. So we desperately need to, to ask God's help and perhaps the greatest contribution we can make to society at this time is to commit ourselves to the transformative process and to, uh, to the divine therapy in a, in a non-conceptual form of meditation that can heal the emotional wounds of our lifetime and enable us then to manifest the love of God in our behavior insofar and as the Holy Spirit may inspire each of us given our talents and capacities. So... Each one of us has an enormous accountability for being human in this moment of time, where what we actually do with the rest of our lives can actually save this planet or not. Do you think we could end, Father Thomas, with a, with a prayer? Would you be willing to invoke a prayer for this, sure. really what we've... Yeah. done here together, which is creating a, a program to communicate how to do centering prayer and, and what the process is like, the yes. map of that journey. Okay. For, for the well, let's. Holy Spirit of God, you fill the whole world with your wisdom. Help everyone to receive it into their hearts and to open ourselves to every human being in the forgiveness, compassion, and love. May the practice of centering prayer contribute to this transformation of society and lead many and uh, more and more people into the transforming process of oneness and uh, equality and happiness. So we ask for this and everything else that is in our hearts at this moment in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a conversation that I had with Father Thomas Keating. Thank you so much for joining us. SoundsTrue.com, Waking Up the World.